0: A saxophone quartet is like a string quartet, a standalone ensemble with one each, baritone, tenor, alto, and soprano saxophones. A jazz big band sax section has five saxophones, typically two altos, two tenors, and a baritone. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music played by piano trios, sax quartets, string quartets, wind quintets, and every other type of tet. The episode you're about to listen to is entirely independent and entirely listener-supported, and while I say that every episode, I really want to emphasize how cool that is. If you'd like to help me make this show, go to patreon.com slash strong songs to sign up, and all my current patrons, thank you, thank you so much. So as it turns out, my most recent Mailbag episode merely scratched the surface of all the listener questions I've got saved up, so we're back with more of your best musical questions. I'm excited to get into it, but there's another opinion that we haven't really gotten in a while, so you know what I think we should do? I think we should ask the horns what they think. Have a ton of saved up listener questions and we'll probably never be able to get to all of them. Thanks so much to everyone who has ever sent one in. Even if I haven't gotten a chance to answer your question, I may still one day. It could totally happen. I've got them all saved. So by all means, send more musical questions to listeners at StrongSongsPodcast.com. I'm always looking for more things to talk about. Speaking of that, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get into it. Natalie writes, referring to a Q&A episode from a little while back, You mentioned that "Staying Alive was the perfect song to walk down the street to, And I agree. It made me think of the last first aid course I took, where they teach you that having a song in your head is the best way to keep the needed beat of chest compressions for CPR. I think the list of suggested songs has grown over the years, but I was first taught to keep another one bites the dust in my head. Then, as people thought that it wasn't the most positive thing you could be muttering while trying to save someone, Staying Alive became the new default song. So thank you for sharing that, Natalie. I was aware that "Staying Alive was used to to kind of cue up your tempo for CPR. I believe it features in an episode of the American version of The Office. And uh, I really like that because it does have that very steady tempo and you can kind of get it in your head. Um, I think that's a really funny story, though. I mean, darkly funny, but funny that any CPR instructor would use another one Bites the Dust as a song to cue off of for when you're giving CPR. As you say, that is not really a lyric that you want to be singing to yourself when you're trying to save someone's life. Um, I checked the tempos on these. Staying Alive is a little bit slower. It comes in at around 105 beats per minute. Another one bites the dust is a little bit faster. It's at 110. And I've actually always felt like five clicks. That's about the difference you need to really kind of notice the difference. No one's really going to notice the difference between 105 and 106 beats per minute. But if you listen to them near one another, you can kind of hear it. and now just a little bit faster <music> to return to the walking thing when you walk in time to stay alive you can kind of do a laid back strut but when you walk in time to another one bites the dust you're doing a little bit more of a focused strut you are strutting somewhere of course, when it comes to CPR, the difference between staying Alive and Another One Bites the Dust is a lot more than five clicks per minute. Anyway, just something that made me chuckle.
1: Another one bites the dust
0: Another one bites the dust
1: and another
0: one Jane writes, I was listening to an old music TV show and the drummer said I can play less of the ghost notes. I looked up what that meant on Wikipedia and I still don't really understand. Maybe you could add this to your next Q&A. So ghost notes are typically something drummers do on the snare drum, or at least that's the context in which I hear and use the term. It's not exclusive to drumming, though. You can play ghost notes on other instruments, like on saxophone. I'll play ghost notes in jazz sometimes. When you're playing a line that's like bop, 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 you're kind of swallowing every other note. It's a note you're fingering something but it's not fully coming out as a note that kind of counts as a ghost note too but the context that i'm mainly using it and in the example you're citing um, that's also uh, in terms of the snare drum and drumming so we talk a lot about thump and pop and sizzle here on strong songs there's even a t-shirt if you want to buy a thump and pop and sizzle t-shirt you totally should because it's a cool shirt so those are the fundamental elements of groove the thump is the kick drum the sizzle is the hi-hat and the pop is the snare drum Now, that pop is usually a clear hit, and there's a lot of space around it if you take it on its own. So if a basic rock beat with no ghost notes sounds like this. If you take the pop and isolate it, it sounds like this. So when you just take the pop on its own, there's a lot of space in between each individual hit. Ghost notes are quieter notes that drummers add on the snare drum in the spaces between those big pops, and that lets them mix up their groove with more subdivision, which makes the groove busier. They're called ghost notes because they're played much more quietly. They're kind of ghosts at the back of the scene, and they sort of float around in the spaces between the bigger snare pops. Here's that original basic groove again. and here it is with some ghost notes on the snare drum. So the groove is still basically the same, that basic snare pop, the backbeat is still there, there are just more notes in the spaces in between. I recently talked about ghost notes with regard to the great Bernard Purdy and his Purdy shuffle, which I highlighted on my recent episode about Steely Dan's Babylon Sisters. Purdy makes great use of ghost notes in his groove on that tune. It's busier than your average funk groove, but it's certainly distinct. I mean, a Purdy shuffle sounds like a Purdy shuffle. Ghost notes can make a groove more distinct. They can also make a groove too busy. Lots of drummers kind of get caught up in doing the fanciest grooves with the most intricate ghost notes. It's really impressive when you watch someone on YouTube and they're doing all this fancy business with their left hand on the snare drum, but a lot of time that kind of stuff like it sounds cool in a YouTube video, but it just gets in the way if you're playing in a band. The best drummers, they have great time. The time is the most important thing. Some of the most famous drum grooves ever recorded have no ghost notes at all. So when it comes down to it, time is king, whether you're playing a groove with a ton of ghost notes. Notes or a groove that's just a steady backbeat. Lillian writes Here's one for the QA. I've recently rediscovered my love for country music and have been listening to whatever Spotify recommends. I came over Alan Jackson's Freight Train, which I just love because of the rhythmic singing and the solid country lyrics. At about 2 minutes and 25 seconds, he sings, I think, a train sound. Do you happen to know what technique is being used here? Well, let's listen and see what we hear. This is Alan Jackson's Freight Train.
2: Just to get me started, wish I was a freight train, baby. Wish it was a freight train, baby. Wish it was a freight train.
0: And here's the sound.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> Man, so for starters, I just love the country train beat. He's playing with brushes there. I've talked about brushes a few times recently on the show, and that's actually a great use of brushes is that... It's kind of really light groove, but it really really moves. That's a session player named Eddie Bears and I feel like any Nashville session player could just play that groove in their sleep, but he really kills it. Anyways, that's uh, that is now what Lillian is asking about. So Lillian is asking about the sound that Jackson makes with his voice at the start of the solo section. Let's listen to it. Yeah. It's really cool. That is actually an unexpected but pretty clear example of a multiphonic, which is a vocal technique that I've talked about a few times on other Q&A episodes, but I've never actually really heard it used in country music before. So multiphonic is just what it sounds like. You get your vocal cords to vibrate quickly between two different simultaneous pitches, and that lets you make two notes come out at once. I recently talked about it with regards to the band The Who. Uh, They make multiphonics by channeling the Mongolian throat singing tradition, and that's kind of more about singing really low fundamentals and then isolating overtones. Another recent example of this is something I talked about on a very early Q and A episode with regards to the singer Layla Hathaway and her performance with Snarky Puppy. That actually sounds very similar to what Jackson is doing. So check this out. You'll hear her making a very similar multi-phonic vocal sound. <laughs> Pretty cool, right? So now listen to Alan Jackson, you'll hear a very, very similar technique. as for the practical physical techniques used for doing this i can't actually tell you i worry enough about singing single notes i'm definitely not trying to learn how to sing multiphonics over here however i can play plenty of multiphonics on the saxophone so i could kind of hazard a guess just based on this like the same principles kind of apply you probably have to apply very specific air pressure and keep it super relaxed which will let your vocal cords sort of shimmer in between two simultaneous pitches so i'm guessing it's a very delicate thing that requires a lot of control and specific technique. It's a really cool sound and it's more than just a gimmick. It can really just be kind of a thrilling and interesting thing, a nice texture to add and it really does sound like a train whistle. Catherine writes, Hey Kirk, I was just listening to one of my favorite No Name songs and I realized the groove is just insanely difficult to unpack and understand, at least for me. The song is called Sunny Duet. So, No Name is an incredible rapper. She does have some pretty wacky beats under her tunes, so let's give this track a listen and see what we hear. This is No Name's Sunny Duet. <laughs> Okay, so there's a lot going on there. Let's listen just a little bit more so you can hear when No Name comes in
2: a name look like butterflies and Hennessy I'll it in for happiness but don't remember me sitting on my lawn waiting for to call me
0: name okay okay so this is actually a great setup for something that I've wanted to talk about for a while because I spend a lot of time breaking down grooves and explaining counting and a lot of times that's productive and useful especially on most of the tunes that I've done but here's the thing about groove is sometimes groove is just kind of more fundamental than that it's just something that you feel and it's not necessarily something that you have to perfectly diagram, even if that is technically possible. So Catherine sent along a couple of links to people who've been talking about this recording, trying to figure out the groove and like diagram it. Lots of very smart people being like, well, I think that the hi-hat is actually like a septuplet, so they're playing sevens and then they're laying back the snaps, and so then they're getting this kind of, you know, juxtaposition between the two parts of the groove. And I couldn't help but read that and feel a little bit like it was beside the point. So there's this whole kind of deconstructionist bent to modern hip-hop and some modern pop music right now. People are embracing broken beats, lo-fi sounds, microtonal sounds, and they're continuing a tradition that's been really happening ever since the very first producer sat down with a drum machine and tweaked the snare drum to lay back a little bit behind the beat. This no-name record is called Telephone. It's her debut mixtape from 2016. It's an incredible listen. She's lyrically super clear. She's very precise in what she's saying. She's a great lyricist, a great storyteller, but the music is it's not exactly clear like it's kind of clear the sounds are very clear the tones are very clear but rhythmically it's like stretched out they lay back and then they rush and there's this kind of this feeling that different beats and different grooves are rubbing up against one another and it makes the whole thing sound discombobulated and kind of drunken it's extremely cool and I
2: know the money don't really make me whole. the magazine covers drenched in gold the the little things I need to save my soul, and I know the money don't really make me whole.
0: The drums, the keys, the bass, and her rhythmic phrasing, they're all pushing and pulling against one another. And rather than try to diagram those respective rhythmic relationships, you kind of just have to relax and feel it. The groove exists in the space between all of that pushing and pulling, and if you can relax and float there with it, it'll carry you along.
2: You can have the rest of me Basket case silhouette. cigarette internet check my Twitter page for something holier than black death who am I? Gypsy black the vacancy of Halleloo. me my interviews
0: me only so parent- like diagramming and breaking down deconstructionist music it's kind of defeating the point like it's going against the whole idea the whole ethos of the music so rather than diagram and I think it's just about finding the pulse let's go back to sunny duet the pulse is right there for you as complicated as that song sounds let's listen it's like just this, hmm, hmm, mm, mm. Just move your head to it. You know, you can feel it. It's right there. Rain, it's just a dream, no? Don't
1: call me crazy, no? rain don't feel like rain no? It's been so calm.
0: No? So if you want somewhere to start, you know, something to hold on to, focus on the hi-hat because that's pretty steady, and those snaps come in kind of on the backbeat, though they're moved around and laid back a little bit. But if you can just focus on that... That kind of feel. You'll at least kind of be able to center yourself in the groove if you're really feeling lost. Harmonically, it's just going between four chords. Really standard jazz chord progression in G major. Starts on the two, two minor seven that walks down to a five seven, down to one major seven, down to a six dominant seven with a flat nine on it. Um, So it's just two, five, one, six flat nine that's like super common kind of chord progression and they're just sort of breaking up those arpeggios to make them feel kind of stuttered and a little bit out of time but it's just kind of grooving between those four chords like it really lends itself to improvising it's fun to just come up with little melodies over this groove kind of made up that piano solo and it's not like an exemplar of perfect improvising or anything but playing it was actually pretty interesting because the groove is so diffuse you kind of just have to relax and just play and like listen and open your ears and just go with it The wonderful thing about this kind of groove is that it forces you to let go a little bit. You got to just roll with it and trust that the musicians have got you because they do. I mean, when No Name comes in and starts rapping, you can feel the flow right with her of this pulse of the song, even though there's some pretty funky rhythmic stuff going on, you know, in the spaces underneath her.
2: I used to have a name that looked like butterflies and Hennessy. I traded them for happiness, but Joyful don't remember me. Sitting on my front lawn, waiting for him to call me. He said he knew. My name. Right.
0: So obviously this kind of rhythmic stuff, it goes back to jazz, it goes back before jazz, but in terms of hip-hop, it's kind of tied inextricably to the rise of the drum machine and various producers who experimented with the drum machine. So a drum machine lets you sequence a groove, and then you can just kind of loop it and experiment with it, kind of tweak it. That technology really helped make this kind of broken beat possible. This kind of thing is also referred to as strung, which is sort of the mix between straight and swing, that you can sometimes get by actually playing with having different elements of the groove like the hi-hat can be swung in certain places and straight in other places while the snare and the kick are straight and looking at a sort of sequencer pattern for a drum machine gives you an opportunity to fine tune it in a way that a drummer could do instinctively okay I'm going to lay back my hi-hat now but if you're looking at a grid and sort of moving things around you know setting the quantization to be swing here and straight here you can get much more surgical with it and that was what a lot of people started doing once they had drum machines and access to that kind of fine control. So if you set the kick drum and the snare drum and just have them going and they're playing straight eights and then you get on the hi-hat and you start swinging it in places and playing it straight in other places so you get a kind of a strung sound, which is a good word for it. Um, A broken beat is also something people call it. And people also call it a Dilla beat in reference to the late great hip-hop producer Jay Dilla. J. Dilla is a really famous hip-hop producer, an increasingly famous hip-hop producer, because Dilla beats have really caught on. There are a lot of bands that do kind of Dilla beats these days. He's commonly credited with this kind of a groove. He was at the vanguard of the whole lo-fi hip-hop movement in the early 2000s, along with others like Madlib, MF Doom. It was a whole scene. There was a lot of really amazing music happening. Um, He'd set up a drum pattern on the drum machine and then offset the hi-hat maybe while leaving everything else in place. He also liked to play a lot of his grooves by hand, so he could just really fine-tune how laid back certain elements of them were and he'd ha- he'd like purposefully lay back or stutter the kick drum you know he'd have these grooves that just got this lazy kind of drunken feeling John. That's Waves from Jay Dillow's 2006 record Donuts, and it's a good example of his kind of a groove. He has all kinds of grooves. Really, it's worth checking out his music. It's Some pretty amazing stuff. Um, but all those songs really groove. They coalesce. You can move to them. You can really feel them. You know, kind of inside of you the way you can feel any good rhythm. But there's a purposefully blurry quality to them that just, it makes them distinct. It's really cool. And he's just carrying on what so many jazz drummers had already been doing. I mean, this is totally in the jazz tradition. It's just another way of how, like, humans feel rhythm in a more fundamental way than writing it out on sheet music. And any great drummer can just adjust faders in their brain and lay certain things back or push other things forward. They're not thinking, like, now I'm going to switch to playing septuplets on the hi-hat or I'm going to move to a dotted eighth 16th thing in the kick drum so I can create this juxtaposition it's just kind of like now I'm just gonna mm, all right time to kind of stretch the hi-hat a little bit and see how that feels and uh, it's much more just kind of natural thing it's still the result of years and years of work and rhythmic mastery it's just not quite so calculating like D'Angelo is a great example D'Angelo's voodoo one of the greatest albums ever made definitely gonna be featured in the strong songs episode at some point here um on left and right which is a tune from voodoo there's a lot of cool rhythmic stuff going on but it's not about like charting it out exactly i think that dangelo just sort of lays some things back and sort of played with the groove let's stretch this one behind the beat let's push this one up front and then he finally found a mix that he liked that he liked the feel of it to me. i
1: would have to believe there's no reason for you to leave so stay right here, stay right here In my own in
0: my own, yeah. <laughs> Man, that whole record groove is so friggin' hard um, A lot of modern jazz and fusion groups also use strung grooves really effectively And I also just don't think that they're sitting down and notating how they're doing it It's kind of more of a felt thing I recently got hip to this Australian group, Hiatus Coyote They're super good, their drummer Perrin Moss loves a good strung hi-hat groove so i mentioned that no name uses some microtonal sounds on her record and i think this stuff is all related like it's all part of the same thing broken beats are on the rhythmic spectrum what microtonal sounds are on the harmonic spectrum um i talked about this a few q a episodes ago microtonal music and in both microtonal music and also in these kinds of broken, strung beats, musicians are stretching beyond the boundaries of quote-unquote traditional music, like the strung stuff goes beyond the boundaries of just the standard subdivision of a groove, just like in microtonal music they're stretching outside of the also quote-unquote traditional western twelve-tone harmonic scale. And whenever musicians do this, which to be clear they have been doing forever, I mean the entire jazz tradition is built out of various versions of doing this, and it goes way earlier than jazz, I mean musicians have always been doing Doing this. And when they do, they put a lie to the idea that music has rules in the first place, because it doesn't, no matter what the music explainer industrial complex may tell you. And I know I'm saying that as someone who makes a music explaining podcast, but it's important to keep in mind that the rules of music as we know them, they're just an agreed upon framework. It makes it easier to talk about and teach music, but it's not the actual rules of the road. It's not the truth of music. Music itself can't possibly be contained in a textbook or a sheet of paper or even an overlong answer on a music podcast. When you listen to stuff like this, it's such a cool reminder that there's something so much more fundamental about music. There's something so much deeper than, like, you know, a a Western harmony textbook or a piece of drum sheet music. And when you hear musicians purposefully kind of breaking those rules in ways that force you to just relax and listen to the groove and not think too hard about all the funky subdivisions and all the different ways that they could have cut up the beat, that's actually really profound and really beautiful. Anyways, this no-name tune is super good. Um, I could probably do a more detailed breakdown of the group, but I'm not going to, because I think we should all just relax and go with it.
1: So don't tell me what you call me,
2: you call line, no. i used to have a name that looked like butterflies and Hennessy. I'll trade it out for happiness, but Joyful don't remember me. Sitting on my front lawn, waiting for him to call me. He said he knew my name.
0: Steve writes, in the elbow song Jesus is a Rochdale Girl, there's a piano riff that occurs throughout the song. It sounds incomplete to me. Is it the melody and or the rhythm? It seems like it's missing a note at the end, but my ear is not good enough to figure it out. I do like the effect and think it ties well to what the song is about, a life that is still in progress, things done and things yet to do. Well, let's listen to the piano riff on the elbow song in question and see what we hear. A thousand boxes yet to take. That's a nice piano part. So yeah, there is something nice happening here. I believe that's Elbow's Craig Potter on the keyboard, and he's playing a line that is indeed unresolved, and the harmony is part of why it would sound unresolved to you, Steve. He's also doing something cool rhythmically, but let's start with the harmony. So we're in the key of G, and he's playing a pretty simple line. He kind of starts up on a D, and then he goes down to G and just kind of walks around on the G major scale. And he's laying way back on the rhythm, so it's already it's kind of lazy and behind the beat.
1: A thousand boxes, yeah, to
0: take. Playing in unison octaves, so his left and right hands are playing the same notes in different octaves, but he's letting them kind of pull apart. So his left hand on the lower part is behind his right hand rhythmically, and that creates this kind of out of focus feeling.
1: A thousand boxes, yeah, to take.
0: But the main reason for the unresolved feeling that Steve is asking about is that it's an unresolved melody. So we're really squarely in the key of G here, uh, G major, but the melody ends on an A, and that's the two in the key of G. And that's an unresolved sound. It's sort of similar to ending on a seventh, which is also a very unresolved sound. Both the two and the seven kind of naturally want to resolve back to G. Our ear has kind of been trained over the years of just listening to a lot of music written by people who write according to these rules that we want to hear a seventh or to resolve back to the one, back to G. But this keyboard part does not do that resolution. So let me just demonstrate. Here's what that same melody would sound like if it had one more note and it ended on a G on the one. It sounds kind of settled, right? Like it's arrived, because it has. It's arrived back at the one, which matches up with the bass note and the rest of the harmony and everything that your ear has told you that the one and the kind of home sound of this song is, you're there, the melody has arrived right on a G. But that's not what happens. Here's what it actually sounds like. You want it to resolve, you want it to go to a G, but it doesn't, stays on the A, it just sits there on the A, Unresolved. And I think that's beautiful how you put it, Steve, that this sort of matches up with what the song is about, that it's a song about a life that's still in progress, and it's a melody that's still in progress and that hasn't resolved. And, a, yeah, a really good example, actually, of how you can effectively leave a leading tone dangling and build some tension and a sort of unresolved feeling into a melody, especially a really simple one like this, just by leaving it unresolved.
1: A thousand boxes yet to change. Thank mm-hmm. you.
0: S. Snyder writes, My dad told me today about a rare type of saxophone called a slide saxophone. Do you know about that? What can you tell me and the listeners about them? They have a unique sound. Uh, You're right, they do have a unique sound. The slide saxophone is super cool. I don't have one, but I was aware of the instrument. Uh, This is just off of YouTube. This is what a slide saxophone sounds like. Mm -hmm. This is saxophonist Frédéric Kuderk playing uh, Duke Ellington's Come Sunday on the slide saxophone. It's a cool instrument and a fun one to watch, too. So the slide saxophone was invented by a jazz trombonist named Leo Snub Mosley in the early 20th century, and it makes sense that it was invented by a trombone player. It has a lot in common with that instrument. It's a pretty basic instrument. It's a saxophone mouthpiece feeding into a metal body that's no tone holes, so it's just a closed metal tube. The slide moves up and down vertically and extends the size of the horn itself, which changes the pitch, so you work the slide in order to get a steady change in pitch. The same physics are at work as in a trombone, only instead of buzzing into a trombone mouth, You're blowing across a reed and getting your buzz from the reed. It's also the same idea as a slide whistle, you know, one of those little dudes. Um, Same kind of idea there. It's really kind of just a really big slide whistle with a saxophone mouthpiece on it. It's a really cool instrument it's a good reminder that there are all sorts of interesting hybrids and experimental horns out there you know more than just the 20 or so horns that we tend to see in bands and orchestras like now that i've seen one i've kind of watched a bunch of videos after this question i definitely want one so there you go slide saxophone it's a real thing and it's very cool Now for a couple guitar questions. Tony writes, Why does Stevie Nicks' Edge of 17 sound like it does? How does Wadi Watchell, who's playing the guitar, get that super distinctive guitar sound? It's the backbone of the whole song. It's blended with Stevie's voice at some point, it almost sounds human, and why has no other song ever sounded like this? Well, let's listen for starters. This is a very well-known song, you've probably heard it, but this is Stevie Nicks' Edge of 17, and pay attention for the guitar. <music> So, really, right from the beginning, the guitar totally drives the bus on this tune. And yeah, it's partly the effect that he's getting, and it's also just the way that it's panned. So that is indeed Wally Watchell on the guitar. I might be pronouncing his name wrong. Um, That's him though. It's a cool part. It's deceptively difficult, mainly because the whole groove is built around the guitar. So it needs to be super consistent and also just really grooving. He's making it groove by playing, he's playing 16th notes, digga, 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 digga. And he's palm muting with his right hand, which means he's muting the strings to keep them, you know, kind of closed down. But then he slightly unmutes every downbeat. So you get that and that really creates this sort of downbeat heavy pulse that kind of defines the whole song. Like it's all sizzle there, right? It's just the hi-hat and the guitar are both digga 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 dig dig digga just playing 16th notes, and there's no pop, there's no thump, not for a while. And this song has a really kind of broken groove that's super cool. In terms of effects, it's pretty clean. It's got a little bit of overdrive, and he's got some kind of an effect on it. Sounds like it's maybe a flanger to me, though I don't have a flanger pedal, so I can't noodle with it to try to recreate it. It's something that adds a kind of a filter, a little bit of motion to the guitar signal. Um, most importantly, though, he's running in stereo, like I mentioned. I don't actually think this is two overdubbed guitar parts. I think this is one part running in stereo, which could mean that they like ran the part in and then split it on the board while they were mixing. Or I'd actually guess that it's just as likely that he's running his guitar through two amps, and they've mic'd those separately and panned them hard left and right. In terms of the iconic sound of this song, that stereo pan makes all the difference. Here's me, I'm kind of just recreating this on guitar, a little bit slower because I can't play it as fast as he does, Uh, but this is me on guitar just mono, panned center. And here's the same recording but split into a really hard stereo version. Thank you. So, the way that I did that was I copied the first part to a second part, then I panned them hard left and right, and then nudged one to be just a tad earlier than the other so they weren't just sort of phase canceling one another out. I don't know if that's what they did on Edge of 17, I kind of doubt it, but it gets the same kind of an effect. The guitar is really percussive here, it has a lot of subdivision because it's just playing those steady 16th notes, and it's panned so hard left and right that it envelops the rest of the mix, so it's the dominant sound throughout the entire recording. It's a really, really cool sound.
1: She's singing. Ooh,
0: ooh, ooh. Now it's funny that you say that no other song has sounded like that because Watchell has apparently acknowledged that he was inspired by none other than Andy Summers of The Police and his riff on Bring On The Night from The Police's self-titled album a couple of years earlier. ¶¶ It's not stereo panned in the same way, but you can definitely hear the similarities. Sixteenth notes, we're in the key of E, got some kind of a phaser, a flanger going on. Pretty similar vibe. The
1: afternoon has me by
0: they're pretty different songs otherwise and it's not like anybody gets to own an e minor palm muted guitar riff going down to c and then d and then e but it's cool to hear the influence and it's a great guitar part in both songs and in edge of 17 it's a really cool example of the power of stereo how panning apart can cause it to totally define the song's groove and define the recording overall while we're talking about Sting in the Police, here's another one. Jeff writes, I have always wondered why the guitar in the song Roxanne by the Police sounds like it's syncopated. Upon closer listen, I don't think it is. The guitar hits are on the downbeat, but I can't place why it still sounds syncopated to my ear. Is there just a slight intentional offset in the timing or is there something more complex going on? Am I just slowly going mental? Is there a name for this kind of a composition? Well, let's give it a listen. This is a very famous song with a really, really cool arrangement. This is Roxanne by the police Really cool one, and the way this arrangement works is super cool. So the police are a three-piece. Andy Summers playing guitar, Stuart Copeland is playing drums, and Sting is playing bass. And pretty much all of their arrangements are clever in some way or another. They're really, really advanced musicians and they like to embrace how advanced they are. Um, Roxanne is no different. So when Jeff says that he's hearing the guitar parts as syncopated, that means that his ear is telling him that the guitar parts are upbeats. Like if the tempo is right here: three, four, one, two, three, four, that would put the guitar. Guitar beats like that's actually a really common kind of guitar part. You'll hear it all the time in reggae music at faster tempos. You'll also hear it in ska. People call it a bunch of things like an upstroke. People call it skanking. That's kind of that style of guitar. Check, 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 check with the upbeats, and you're kind of playing the upstroke with your right hand, with your picking hand, assuming you're right handed, of course. So the police know that, and when Roxanne starts with the guitar playing those quarter notes, your ear has kind of been conditioned by lots of other music that you've heard to expect the drums and bass are going to come in on the downbeat, and the guitar is going to be doing that upstroke thing, but instead they flipped it around. So the bass and the drums are actually the ones that are syncopated, and Andy Summers' guitar is just playing steady downbeat quarter notes.
1: Roxanne, you don't have to put
0: like the tempos with the guitar. It's just one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And they keep it going. Two, three,
1: four, one, two, three, four.
0: So Copeland is playing a steady backbeat on two and four on his snare drum. Just one, two, three, four. But his kick drum and Sting's bass are always coming in on the upbeat. One, bop, bop, three, four. One, bop, bop, three, four. Which creates this kind of disjointed and discombobulated feeling because you're probably so used to hearing the guitar being on the upbeat and the bass and the drums being on the downbeat. Rocks! Now, as for what to call that kind of composition, I'd say it's, it's a super syncopated song in general, despite the fact that the guitar part is so non-syncopated, the song itself is actually very syncopated. I'd also just call it really hip. Like, the police are a hip band. This is a really hip song. Roxanne is just, it's really cool. It's kind of wild, actually, that music as advanced as the music the police made is such an ingrained part of American pop music of just You know, it was on the radio for so many years, but I guess that's just the police for you. And before you email, just close that email app because yes, I am planning on doing a police song. It's actually going to happen, not in the near, near term, but it's going to happen. So uh, stay tuned for that. Jake writes with a three-parter about voice lessons. He writes, how did you find your singing teacher? Well, the answer to that is I looked around and I found um, vocal teachers in the Portland area. And then I read some reviews online. And then I uh, just gave my teacher, Nevada, a shot. And I really liked him. So I stuck with him. So that's how I found my singing teacher. Jake's second question is, how did you describe to your teacher what you were looking to get from the instruction? And I guess I was like, I want to sing... Higher with more control, more dynamic range uh, through my mix and into my upper register, which is kind of another way of just saying, I want to be a good singer. Since being a good singer, you know, vocal technique is really about controlling your passaggio and your belt, your sort of upper chest voice, and mixing that into your head voice. And that's kind of the whole enchilada. So if you can do that, you can do a lot of things. So I kind of was just like, I want to be a better singer, but um, I had a little bit more specific. Um, of a goal than that, and I already had the language to describe it since um, Nevada was not my first voice teacher, though he's the one I've stuck with the longest. He's a great teacher. Hi, Nevada. He actually listens to this show. Hey, man. and I brought in some recordings of singers that I thought I could kind of sound like, that I wanted to sound like, and uh, it was a little specific about it, but I mostly just said, you know, I want to have a healthier voice. I want to have more control. And uh, we went from there. Final question from Jake is, I think, maybe the most relevant one. He asks, should I wait until everyone is vaccinated so that I can get voice lessons in person? And this is an interesting one. I think that, generally speaking, music lessons in person are better, though specific to voice lessons, it's kind of interesting. Like, I was just talking with Nevada about this in a lesson a little while ago, and... There are some things about Zoom lessons, which we've been doing Zoom lessons for the last year because obviously he hasn't been doing um, lessons in, in real life. Uh, even though we live pretty close to each other and used to do them in person. Um, And doing it over Zoom, it has some benefits, actually. Like, you are comfortable. Like, I find that I'm comfortable because I'm just at home in my home studio. And there's something to that. I can relax a little bit more. It definitely would happen where we'd be in a voice lesson and another teacher, you know, who teaches out of the same building would come through with a student, and I'd be in the middle of maybe singing something difficult. And, you know, it makes you kind of self-conscious, right? I could kind of tense up. And uh, there are always distractions around. You'll see some guy out in the yard next door, like doing some yard work. And I'll be like, I bet that guy can hear me right now. As you know, I'm trying to belt out this high note. And things like that can actually, you know, be challenging, even though I'm sure there are also things about doing lessons in real life. Like I'm sure he can see things or hear things that are a little harder to track over Zoom. I think it's a a little bit more of a mixed bag than you might think. So I would say don't wait. Um, It'd be cool to find a teacher in your area if you can, but uh, just Find someone who is doing Zoom lessons and go ahead and, and start because uh, it's never it's never too early to start learning how to sing. It's been a really cool journey for me anyways. So good luck, Jake. Next question comes from Penn. Penn writes, I've been practicing beatboxing for about two and a half years now, and I've gotten really into the trove of videos about beatboxing that are available on YouTube. While there are more and more people creating complete songs and tracks, the vast majority of beatbox content is still focused on battles between two beatboxers, and for most aspiring beatboxers, battles are the only way to get noticed and to improve. While that makes for great YouTube content is a great way to hone skills at a live performance, a lot of people, myself included, feel that it's damaging the culture. The more the scene grows, the more you end up comparing people with completely different styles. I'd love to hear your thoughts on competition in music generally, its advantages and disadvantages, whether you can objectively say one musician is better than another and your experience with it? Okay, this is a great question. I have a ton of thoughts on it. I'll try to contain them into something reasonably contained so I don't just go on forever because I do have a lot of thoughts about competition in music and the kind of thing that Penn is wondering about. So I'll start with a story about a 1957 jazz album called "Sunny Side Up. This is a Dizzy Gillespie record, technically the trumpet player, and uh, he was the band leader, but he hired Sonny Rollins and Sonny Stitt, two of the hottest saxophone players around, to play on the record, and then it's called "Sunny Side Up, S-O-N-N-Y, because Dizzy Gillespie was a hilarious guy, and they actually opened the album with the sunny side of the street. Do you get it? Do you get the joke yet? Um, I'm worried that you don't get the joke. Anyways... The most famous track on this album, which is a famous album on its own, is called The Eternal Triangle. It's a rhythm changes, really fast bebop tune, and it features this shredding battle, as you might call it, between the two tenor saxophone players, Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins. So it's a real burner it's like almost 300 beats per minute they're playing super super fast they play through the melody and then Sonny Rollins takes his solo first and the first time that I heard this I was actually at a Jamie Abersault jazz camp I was still in high school I was all about chops I thought I knew a thing or two about jazz and Jamie played us this recording and he let us follow along with the transcription so first we heard Sonny Rollins's solo. So Rollins takes this kind of dark, rhythmic, punchy approach to his solo. It's vintage Sonny Rollins. He's playing a lot of really creative stuff. And by creative, I mean the lines that he was playing, like the different melodies, the different licks, they didn't really sound like the lines that anybody else was playing at the time. He sounded like himself. He sounded like Sonny Rollins. At the time, the first time that I heard this, sitting in that room at Jamie Aversald's jazz camp, I didn't really internalize that. I wasn't all that familiar with Sonny Rollins. Like I hadn't done a ton of Sonny Rollins transcriptions like I have now. I hadn't kind of really learned a lot about the way that he conceived of jazz harmony, his particular voice was just, you know, it was another saxophone player. So to me, it was like, okay, that's a saxophone solo. So after Sonny Rollins, Sonny Stitt comes in and he starts his solo. And it just immediately struck me that Sonny Stitt was cleaner, he was more precise. He's right in there, these perfectly placed bebop licks. The guy was just killing it. Sonny Stitt. I'll never forget it. I was like 15 years old, walking away from a Jamie Ebersold masterclass, joking with my friends about, Man, Sonny Stitt sure ate Sonny Rollins' lunch on the Eternal Triangle, didn't he? Man, he just brutalized him. Sonny Stitt just totally outplayed him. He crushed it. He won. He won the battle. Okay, so... Let's cut five or so years into the future. I'm now a junior at the University of Miami in Florida. I'm majoring in jazz saxophone performance, and for my semester project I decided I'm going to transcribe the entire Eternal Triangle. I'm going to perform both solos, the Sonny Rollins solo and then the Sonny Stitt solo, and then actually the part where they trade with one another. I'm going to do the whole thing with a live rhythm section. So at that point in my progression as a jazz musician, I transcribed a lot of both Sonny Rollins and Sonny Stitt, but I actually transcribed a lot more Sonny Rollins. As it happens, Sonny Rollins had actually become one of my very favorite saxophone players the man was a genius he had the sound he had a style all of his own and the more i studied his licks the more i came to appreciate just how distinct his voice was and how rare that was like he could play a tune that a hundred other tenor players had played and he'd sound totally different on it he'd sound like sonny rollins and nobody else sounded like him <laughs> was such an oddball. He was such a genius. He was such an incredible player. So endlessly creative. So many cool ideas. So percussive. And his approach to harmony was just this really cool thing. I'd gotten really into Sonny Rollins. And when I came back to the Eternal Triangle, I found... Surprise, surprise, I was actually much more impressed with Sonny Rollins' solo than Sonny Stitt's solo. They're both great, and they're both great in their own way, but I found myself so much more drawn to Sonny Rollins' solo. Sonny Stitt is a really smooth player, he was a big Charlie Parker acolyte, he'd learned a million bebop licks, and the guy could just play anything, and when he goes to play you know, B-flat rhythm changes, which is what the Eternal Triangle is, he's got licks for days, and you can hear those licks in his recording. At the time, when I first heard it when I was younger, I was so blown away by the slick of licks like when the band like when the horns come in on the background and he plays this lick it just killed me I mean that was really really impressive and at the time I understood that to be you know exactly what it is a perfectly placed bebop line just this phrase put just right in the right place building up just so really really cool line but When I came back and transcribed both solos, I found myself so much more interested in what Sonny Rollins was doing when Rollins starts playing this funky rhythmic stuff midway through his solo and the band starts interacting, bass player starts pedaling. I thought that was really cool. Like, that's really original. Just suddenly, like, like, what's he doing? That's not just a bunch of sort of eighth note rhythm changes Charlie Parker licks. That's like some rhythmic stuff. He's suddenly acting more like a drummer. He puts on all these different hats throughout his solo. It's so creative and playful and cool. And that's the point, right? That's the whole point of this story, is that both solos are great, but actually, sometimes you can wind up discounting one or shortchanging one because you're comparing two very different musical or artistic statements just because they're presented in this kind of battle format, even while the battle format is the thing that made both solos happen, and I'm sure they were both just having a lot of fun, and, you know, that's like that's the whole energy of the song— But approaching it the way that I did when I was sort of younger and more immature when I was 15 and first heard it of just like, oh, one of these guys is going to win. One is going to have the better licks. I do think that's actually a really prevalent way of thinking of music, especially in the kind of battle format that Penn is talking about. In Penn's longer email, he mentioned that this battle format that he sees a lot in beatboxing sort of traces its roots back to hip hop. And I'll just mention that, you know, like I just pointed out, and like a lot of things in hip hop and a lot of things in American music in general, it actually goes back farther than that. You can trace it back to jazz. The exact same thing was happening in jazz. You know, two tenor sax players getting up and having what was sometimes even called like a cutting contest on stage to see who could play better. It was a way of motivating one another to play better. Like, it did lead to some really great playing. And it's also super exciting for audiences. I mean, there's a reason that the climactic moments of Eight Mile or Crossroads, you know, any movie that ends with a big musical battle, like, there's a winner and a loser. And that's just... Exciting because that's dramatic and uh, we see the stakes and we get excited by it. But if you only see music through that lens, it's also very limiting. And I do see a lot of that, especially in like YouTube comments and stuff. This is something that Carmen Staff, the great pianist, and I actually talked about recently on a bonus episode you can find in the main feed of just a, a way of treating musicians almost like they're always competing. Like they have stat sheets and so and so can play giant steps at 320 beats per minute and so and so can play it in seven, eight time. And, you know, that makes them the better player. When when it comes down to it, the fastest licks, the most precise technique, that's only part of the story, and that's never going to be the entirety of your sort of musical or artistic self. And I'm not saying that there's some kind of you know, uh, let's hold hands and sing kumbaya, and everybody gets to be their own perfect artistic flower. Like competition is an essential part of especially American music because competition is such an essential part of American culture thanks to like capitalism and the whole way that our society is built and competition has been a part of American music I mean it all came out of jazz and there was so much competition in jazz and so much competition in, in basically every kind of music in our society because people have to audition to get jobs and even in music school it was always competition you were friends with the people in your class but you were low-key competing with the other people on your instrument because only one of you is going to be lead tenor in the top jazz band you know know and you've you've got to go in for that audition and kind of try to win and that does motivate you to be good I mean I became a good saxophone player because I was motivated in large part by the competition in our program to actually talk about another way back episode I interviewed my old band director Jana Stockhouse and we talked about building competition into a program and how to build healthy competition since it is such a powerful driving force for education so, that's a lot of thoughts there on competition and music. I'm, I have a lot more, but I've already gone on for quite a while. I will just say that I did perform the entirety of the Eternal Triangle all by myself, and my takeaway from it is... I really like both solos. They're super impressive in their way. Sonny Sid and Sonny Rollins are both amazing, even though, like I said, Sonny Rollins is like one of my guys, like one of my main saxophone guys. Um, I really love both solos. And man, playing the whole thing live was tough. I just remember my chops were friggin' tired by the time I got to the end of that. And uh, I don't think I could probably play through the whole thing right now, but it does make me kind of want to dig out my transcription book and go relearn those solos. All right, our final question comes from two different people getting at the same concept from different angles. First, Paul writes, "Um, your outro soloists are amazing. I always stick around to hear the latest interpretation of your theme music. I just finished the microtones up and was blown away by Dan Nervo's solo. The thing that caught my ear the most was that there were a couple of moments in his solo where he just sat back and played nothing. He let the tune breathe for a little. I always find this a really attractive quality in a soloist. so my question is whether there's any sort of musical theory to back this up. Is it a sign of a less selfish soloist? Does it show a player who understands the tune on a deeper level? Is it a break to quickly compose the next line of an improvised piece? Why do I like it so much when a musician chooses to play nothing? So, we've got a related question from Daniel, who writes, Is there any truth to the saying that, when listening to jazz, you need to, quote, listen to the notes they're not playing, unquote? How could one possibly do that? What does it mean? Are they just making fun of jazz? P.S. My favorite use of this phrase is in an episode of The Simpsons. Lisa fears that she's losing her intelligence and spends a day indulging all of her intellectual curiosities. She winds up at a jazz club, sitting next to someone who is obviously not enjoying the music. She tells him he needs to listen to the notes they're not playing, to which he replies. I could do that at home.
2: Hmm. Sounds like she's hitting a baby with a cat.
0: You have to listen to the notes she's not playing.
2: I can do that at home.
0: So, both of these questions are kind of about space when it comes down to it, and space is a kind of a funny concept when it comes to music, because it is the absence of music, right? So it's kind of already this slightly Zen-like thing that you have to think about, because what is music but the absence of the absence of music? And can music be silent? Now, if you haven't listened to the episode of 20,000 Hertz that I actually put in our feed, but it's that podcast, 20,000 Hertz, about John Cage's 433, which is an entirely silent composition, you should listen to it, because that's kind of the text on this entire idea like on the absence of music and silence and what silence means for the art and can music be silent like there are a whole lot of really big questions that you can talk about here it gets very heady and very philosophical very quickly but i think there's a little bit more of a practical thing when it comes to jazz and specifically to that quote now this quote is attributed to the great jazz trumpet player miles davis the quote is it's not the notes you play It's the notes you don't play. And yeah, it sounds like a paradox. So it's sort of easily poked fun at. I mean, The Simpsons is sort of doing this. This is something that jazz musicians will say. It's also something that people will make jokes about with jazz all the time to the point where honestly, it gets kind of tiresome. You're like, yes, yes, the notes you don't play. Everybody knows that bit. Everybody knows that joke. No, it doesn't make sense. But it actually does make sense. Like, It's good practical advice to jazz musicians in addition to being a kind of a profound statement about the nature of the art. So part of it is just like space is a good thing and that it's a good thing to stop playing every once in a while. Paul, this is kind of what you're getting at when you're talking about Nervos. I agree. Very cool solo that he played it as an outro solo, um, especially an instrument like a guitar or a piano where you don't have to breathe. You don't have a natural stopping point built in where if you're playing saxophone or you're singing or something, you have to breathe at some point. So your phrasing is going to have some natural stopping points, though that doesn't stop a lot of saxophone players from playing way too many notes um, and leaving space is just good phrasing can make your solo more interesting. Um, I had a teacher back in school who would point out that uh, it's something that's very, very true, which is if you're playing, the minute you stop and then come in on a new phrase, your time will improve at the start of your new phrase. If you just stop and reset for a second, you'll kind of start to wander. It's like why when someone like Freddie Hubbard or Lee Morgan on recent jazz episodes I've done when they play those really long phrases, it's always super impressive when someone can hold it together and really keep it very like conceptually strong and rhythmically locked in for you know a six-bar phrase or something. That's hard to do. If you stop and start a new phrase, you almost always come in really strong, and it's why shorter phrases can actually be a good way to build a solo. So it's partly Just like, take the time to leave the space and you'll build stronger phrases. And that's just a way of telling if someone's kind of got a mature voice is they're willing to just stop for a second when they're improvising and just let the band go for a minute, like You can just take a whole half a chorus. You could just sit there for, you know, eight bars and almost not play anything and just wait, let the rhythm section take over. That gets to the second part of it when it comes to jazz, and that's that you're leaving space for the other players. Jazz isn't just about getting up and blowing everybody away for four choruses with nonstop harmonic fireworks. Like, it's about interacting with the band. It's a conversation that a group of people have together. And if you're leaving space, you're like, You're both making the music more interesting because you're leaving space for the rhythm section to come in. Maybe the piano player can play a figure in the space that you're leaving. You're also opening the door to sort of collaboration in real time. And that's just a sign that you understand in a bigger picture kind of a way how the music is working. And that's also a sign usually of a more advanced and sort of fully realized artist. You know, there are so many people who will get up and just play a billion notes and it's really impressive. But like... It's nowhere near as impressive, at least to me, as someone who gets up and builds something with other people on stage. And that requires you to not play sometimes. And especially if you're a horn player, which Miles Davis was, you know, you're not in the rhythm section. You're not comping. So the only way that you can really interact with the band at all is to stop playing, which feels kind of paradoxical, but as long as you're playing, yes, like the the you know, the rhythm session can comp along with you and you can give them repeated figures and you can be listening to them and have your ears open while you're improvising. But if you really wanna make it an interactive experience you got to stop playing and you have to let them do some stuff too and it signals the band especially if you're playing with a new rhythm section it really signals them that you're listening and you want to do something involved because anyone who's played drums at a jam session you know a late night jam session can tell you there's a lot of people who just come in and it's like you're not even there they just they could have had a metronome on they don't care what you're playing they're just going to play their licks for format for four choruses and then get off stage like they don't want to interact and like make something bigger um, with multiple people so that's part of what it's about Now, the fact that it's coming from Miles Davis is notable. Miles Davis played with a lot of really good space. He had great phrasing. Um, We went in depth on his solo on So What, one of his most famous solos, back on the episode about that song. And Miles Davis was always being compared specifically to Dizzy Gillespie because they were kind of contemporaries in the 40s and 50s. Dizzy Gillespie was way more of this like explosive high note trumpet player of the kind that you kind of picture, you know, the lineage of like Maynard Ferguson and that kind of guy where Miles was sort of charting his own course. He wasn't as interested in playing a billion notes, even though he certainly could. There's some really burning Miles Davis records. So I think it's specific to the guy, too. Like he is imposing his view of jazz in that quote by saying, man, it's not just about the notes you play it's not about how many licks you have it's also about the notes you don't play it's about the restraint that you show it's about the way that you communicate and you leave space for other players it's actually channeling a sentiment that i've wound up coming back to a few times over the course of this episode so it's a fitting note to end on it's not about how much you have to say or how impressively you can say it it's about how well you can communicate which is another way of saying it's about whether you have anything to say at all that'll do it for this latest Q&A episode thanks as always to everyone who sends in questions for the show and if you've got a question that you think could be good for future Q&A episodes send it my way at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com it's been pretty busy times in Strong Songs world lately I've been lining up more folks for bonus interview episodes handling a bunch of behind the scenes stuff technical stuff all kinds of things that wind up taking kind of a lot of time and a lot of work the more this show grows the more work it takes to make it and I am very thankful to everyone who has signed up on Patreon to help me make it current backers and former backers anyone who's ever been a patron of this show you're a part of that and I really appreciate you you can find the name of whole and half note backers in the show notes and you can get your name among them uh, by going to patreon.com slash strong songs also huge thanks to everyone who's been spreading the word about the show if you're sharing it with friends and family that's kind of really what this whole thing is about music is meant to be shared we're meant to listen together and it feels really good to be helping spread a little bit of musical appreciation around the world and all of you who help spread the word about the show are helping me to do that last thing is just there are a lot of things you could have spent the last hour doing and instead you spend it listening to strong songs and i really appreciate it so thanks as always social media links and a newsletter link are down in the show notes i haven't been doing as much social media stuff lately i've just had a lot going on but i'll probably be on there again at some point feels like we're all going to be going outside again so there'll probably be more things to put on instagram but anyway links for that are down there along with playlists for all of the songs that i've covered on the show This episode's outro solo is the one and only Eric Elligers. He recorded his solo earlier in the year. He's a very old friend of mine and a really killer saxophone player. So stick around for Eric, and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song.